Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Herber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. Welcome, everybody, to I Might Believe in Fairies. I have as a special guest today, Dr. Robert Miller. And I'm going to let Robert uh, explain uh, who he is and what he's doing and uh, what his research interests are and kind of introduce the topic for today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, uh, Dr. Bob Miller, and I'm a uh, professor of Old Testament at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and my field is all areas of the Old Testament, but especially uh, mythology. And we're going to define what that means. And uh, in particular, uh, dragons. Uh, so <laughs> dragons in the Old Testament, which uh, people may not even know there are any. Yeah. that. So you wrote a book. And the reason I wanted to have you on is because um, I, I, read, I read your book. I had to get it from the library. Um but it's it's called the dragon the mountain and the nations and it's i thought it was um a little beyond me <laughs> in terms of um like the the amount of research you put into it but it was it was fascinating because it was about dragons especially dragons in near eastern ancient uh mythological systems um with a special focus on the old testament and scripture generally and um yeah, it it was really cool. <laughs> so um, I'm going to let you define. So a lot of people have like, I guess a lot of modern people have issues with the word myth. And, if, you know, if anybody has read Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, they'll know that a myth doesn't just mean something made up or false. Um, so if you could give us, you know, a definition, maybe a, an academic definition of what a myth is. Um, and then we'll go into your book. Yeah, I've got sort of the long definition and the short one, and even the long one is pretty short. So the, the one line is um, a story that describes what is beyond the world in terms of the world. Now, I have to unpack that with the long. So um, a story uh, that... Uh, and well, let me sort of back up here. Almost every one of these pieces I'm going to have to qualify. So we're going to first say a traditional story about characters that are more than human, set in remote antiquity, that tells us about fundamental values. But you have to qualify all of this stuff. So first of all, story. Um, there are no stories in the mythology of ancient Egypt. You have visual images and you can imagine a story based on the images and you can but there's no narrative so um i don't a myth doesn't have to be a narrative a myth could be just appear in prayers a myth could appear just in uh iconography uh or poetry so um i allow broadly uh when i say story 
By traditional, I mean it's not the private possession of, of a real small group of people or uh, one author. It's something that has been handed down over time. Um, it doesn't have to be about gods, but the characters have to be somehow more than just human, at least supernatural in some way. It's set in remote antiquity, or at least set in a time where things happen that can't happen now, even if they envision it as, you know, a, a given period that's not the original, the origin of the universe. It's set in a time where things happen that things can't happen now. And then finally, it is somehow about philosophy. It's about uh, basic right and wrong. It's about why the world is the way it is. These value concepts, and it uses this narrative, this story, in order to get at those instead of philosophy. So a traditional narrative, characters more than human, set in the remote past that is about values. It's kind of like they're like a like a narrative worldview like a worldview yeah. set into yeah. a, a narrative that's kind of yeah and so it's not it's not something that's not true it's something that's i've heard the phrase truer truer than true you know or it's yeah like a like a, a worldview kind of built into a narrative like a story like yeah right yeah yeah i mean for most of the people that have the myth it's the most true thing that they have right uh sometimes they believe it may have literally happened often they don't really care um and the point is uh, is figurative okay uh and then so your book um what so what kind of research um are you primarily interested in and what what prompted you to write your book and um what's kind of the main focus of your book yeah this book started sort of in the middle because i wanted to write about the um, the appearance in some of the Psalms, especially, of uh, references to God crushing the heads of a sea serpent. Uh, and it comes up a few times uh, in some of the Psalms. It comes up in Isaiah 27 and a couple of other places. And I wanted to trace it backwards in time because scholars have known for a long time that this is a an image, a metaphor, a myth that the Israelites borrowed from their neighbors and people before them. And then I just kept tracing it further and further and further back until I got to about 8,000 BC. And I also then traced it forward because I wanted to see what happens to this um, image in the New Testament. And so I traced it forward into the New Testament uh, as well in the book of Revelation and in various other different places. And the point was not just, uh, you know, because I thought this would be neat to know the history. <laughs> it's because I think that, um, that to understand these texts, you have to sort of know where they're coming from and you have to know the roots uh, that are, that go into it. And, um, that is, as much as is a free creation of the author, the authors are building on earlier material and their, their meaning is building on earlier meaning. And sometimes you very curiously have elements that have disappeared for thousands of years suddenly reappearing in a myth in a, in a way that proves to me that when you see a little bit of 
an image, they're actually presupposing the whole of this myth um, behind behind them. Uh, so with um, so you, yeah, you have this this image that you kind of spell out in the book that you <clears throat> kind of uh, compare to uh, the Eastern, the ancient Eastern mythologies of, of is, the Israel's neighbors. Um, and so if you want to, so is that, is that what a mytheme is? Is it kind of like this prepackaged, not prepackaged, but this, the set of images like that? Yeah. The mythemes are the bit, are the images. Okay. So, you know, if you were talking about like um, language, they have these, you have morphemes and phonemes and things like this. And so this is not a term I coined. I think it was Claude Levi-Strauss that coined this term mytheme. So um, in this myth, there's various elements. You have a, a god who is associated with the storm, who is fighting against a dragon that is also associated with the sea. And he's initially unsuccessful and then is successful later on. And then it goes on to include the mountain, the mountain where uh, there's some sort of celebratory feast afterwards. But each of these little pieces, so the god is a storm god. That's one mytheme. The storm god is depicted as a bull. That's another mytheme. The, um, the dragon is the sea. That's another mytheme. And sometimes some of these things disappear and sometimes some of these things reappear. So uh, the best example I can think of is that the number of heads that the dragon has uh, is seven in the Canaanite mythology that the Israelites borrow from. And the seven heads are completely missing in most of the early uh, Israelite material. And they only, but then suddenly, very late in uh, the history of Israel, um, you you suddenly get the seven heads again. And they're there in the book of Revelation in the early Christian period. And so the mytheme of the seven heads is missing in Psalms and Isaiah and everywhere else in between, and then pops up again. And I kept finding this with many of the mythemes. If they disappeared for a while, they'd come back. Hmm. And rarely did you have all of them at once. Um, but I needed something other than motif because motif uh, scholars have used this in far too many ways. And so I, I use this word mytheme instead. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I think in one chapter you talked about Zeus fighting Typhon and Typhon, he had snake heads coming out of his shoulders. Is that right? Instead of like yeah. seven, seven heads. He had, yeah. So it kind of, it gets all, it gets kind of mixed up or they they kind of they change a little bit here and there but depending on the myth but it's still the same and zeus is also a fertility storm god basically right um, yeah yeah and the and the zeus is an interesting example because it it solved a problem for me uh of how to how to talk about ways in which people borrow other people's myths yeah. because there's, there's different ways that this happens. And so uh, I actually started borrowing terminology from comparative linguistics. Um, and the, so here's the, the, the example that will show exactly what I'm talking about. So 
uh, there's this rule in linguistics that um, words that had a T in them in Latin become TH in Germanic languages like English. So the Latin word for three is tertius, and it became three in English a long, long, long time ago, centuries ago. Later on in time, English borrowed words from French and didn't change the, the, the consonant. And so you end up with, um, uh, in English, you have two different words that mean thin. You've got thin, where the T of, um, of tenuis in Latin has turned to th, and then you have the word tenuous, which just means thin, where the T has not changed. It's still t, because one was borrowed thousands of years ago and the other was borrowed hundreds of years ago. Mm. And that's exactly what happened in Israel. They borrowed the dragon slaying myth at least three times. So they borrowed the myth early on from the Canaanites, who had a storm god Baal that fights against a dragon with seven heads. And then... And they borrowed that early in their history. Then when the Jews are in exile in Babylon in like the 6th century BC, they were exposed to a, a Babylonian story about a dragon slaying. Uh, 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 the dragon is named Tiamat. And they borrowed it again. And then centuries later, they were exposed to the Greeks and they saw the story of, of Zeus and Typhon and they borrowed it yet again. And sometimes it, it's hard to see which one they're borrowing because by the time they've learned the third one, they've still got pieces left over of the first two borrowings. <laughs> and so like in the book of Daniel, they clearly have bits and pieces from the Canaanites, the Babylonians and the Greeks all mixed together. And, and I, so it, to me, that was like an English sentence that has the word thin and tenuous in the same sentence. Mm. Uh, and so I, this is just one of many examples I used of, getting terminology so I didn't just have to say they borrowed from them. I could actually be more clear about direct borrowing, multiple streams of borrowing, uh, and different ways of talking about it. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings me, um, so there's, there's a criticism of, you know, Christianity and, you know, um, where they say, you know, the, the critics will, will point to the, this borrowing from other cultures and they'll say, Oh, look, like, Christianity is just um, an amalgamation of different mythological themes and, you know, mythemes and motifs. And, and it's, you know, it's just one big, I don't know what's, if they go as far to say it's a scam, you know, but it's, it's one, it's just, an, uh, Jesus is just Osiris, you know, he's, it's just the same kind of thing. Um, but the Christians took all this stuff and, and repurposed it. How would you answer that? Because they there are there is borrowing going on, but it's not... yeah. I mean, there is, and and you could even find, of course, Christians who would say uh, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas; it's a pagan feast. Uh, right. And I mean, I guess the the pilgrims didn't celebrate Christmas, and right. And uh, you know, what's your Christmas tree doing? That's not in in Bethlehem. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. they're they're borrowing all the time. Yes, Christianity is borrowing things. Uh, and Judaism was borrowing things before that. Um, you have to be 
careful though, because it would be very easy to um, to say everything is borrowed mm-hmm. and to say, you know, well, look, Zeus sleeps with all these women and has uh, heroic children, and isn't that what happens with Mary and Jesus? And so I I I was trying to be very clear that I'm not just talking about everywhere there's a dragon or uh, anything that even remotely looks similar and be very specific that in order to qualify, it has to have a lot of the, a lot of these myth themes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to have all of them, but it's going to have to have a lot of them. Uh, I mean, as soon as I published this book, I had, a, there's a scholar that I've kind of responded to who's at Harvard. And he said, Oh, this is just a global myth. Every human has this, this goes all the way back to, uh, to the original migration out of Africa. And I've read this scholar's work and he, you know, he says, Oh, here's a dragon in, in Polynesia and here's a dragon in the Aztecs. And, um, but you, you have to really like be very vague in order to make everything match. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to be really specific and say, I'm going to talk about a myth that has a lot of shared elements and where I can prove that there's historical contact. I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, So I have this whole chapter where I, and, and uh, where I'm suddenly talking about Japan. That was cool. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and my point, so what I found was in order to, to answer this idea that, oh, this is just a global myth and we all have the same myth, um, I wanted to find a very far away myth that I could say, look, it's exactly the same, but I can say, prove its historical contact. And I also wanted to find one that was really close that is totally different. Mm. And so I, I looked at this myth out of Japan where you have a very, very similar uh, dragon slaying. I mean, the, the there's so many similarities. It, right. It's clearly related, but you can actually show historically how people came from Korea to this part of Japan and how they came f- from Western China to Korea, and they were in fact the same people who are writing these myths in the Near East. And yeah. it completely, it's historically connected. And then the I looked at this myth in in Egypt that is absolutely completely different. And so, although there you would say, if anybody would have the same myth because we all have the same myth, it would be the Egyptians. But in fact, the Egyptian dragon slaying myth is completely different. And so I wanted to show you could, you could have dragons. That doesn't mean it's the myth I'm talking about. And, and every case of the one I'm talking about, there's a historical connection that you can point to. So uh, why would uh, why would that be important to establish that it's not a global myth? That this this pattern of the fertility god that's also the storm god slaying the dragon that's also the kind of the, related to the sea. Um, why would it be important to show that it's not global? You know. Yeah, I mean, in part, it's because once you get to that level of of, uh, well, this is really the same as that. Um, it's just so easy to demolish it. Uh, Mm. The the whole argument becomes very flimsy. Um, and I think my argument is pretty tight because of the fact that it's, you know, look, it's the, 
It's the, always the storm god. The storm god is always a bull. The sea is always the dragon. There's always an initial defeat. I mean, all of these elements repeat over and over and over again. Uh, it makes it harder to say you're just imagining all these connections. As soon as we start throwing in, you know, the, the Aztec Quetzalcoatl, then it's very easy for people to say, you know, this is in the eye of the beholder. You're imagining this and I don't oh, see, I see it. Yeah. You're making um, so connections that was the main right reason. there. Yeah. Cause if you have that historical, um, when the, when the two groups of people meet, you can actually point to say, okay, the, here's where this influence, you know, here's where these two groups of people right. influenced each other. Um, so I don't remember how was the Egyptian story different. I don't, I don't quite remember from the book. Yeah. I mean, you have a, a dragon that is um, sort of slain every day. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the dragon is not, um, the dragon, I mean, the, the dragon doesn't have multiple heads. The dragon is not the sea. Mm. The dragon uh, is not slain by the main god. The god that slays the dragon is not a storm god. I mean, uh, all the other pieces are missing. I see. It, it, it is an example of a dragon that's bad that's killed by a god that's good. That's the only thing that it has in common. I and, see. But other than that, it's, it's totally different. Yeah, okay. Um, so why, I guess I'll go, I'll reference one of my questions that I have in bold here. Um, <clears throat> so with these, uh, other pagan, these pagan myths, um, why is it important to, for Christians to learn about these, like the, the myth of Indra, you know, or, 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 you know, Baal or Baal or however you pronounce it. Why was it, why is that valuable for understanding, uh, scripture? Yeah. I mean, the, the. The immediate ancestor, I think, is important because um, when we get to these passages where, um, you know, it, let me just see if I can find one quickly, where, where you've got God. Um, yeah, Psalm 68 is a good example where you get um, actually let me get you a better one. Uh yeah, uh, well, 72 is probably the, uh, the best one. God is my king from old, working salvation from the midst of the earth. Uh, you broke the sea by your might, shattering the heads of the dragons on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, plural heads, singular Leviathan. Mm, and, yeah. I mean, anybody that reads that is going to say, what in the world is this? I mean, right. when did God crush a, a multi-headed beast. And so you you really have to know where are they getting this term Leviathan? Where are they getting God defeating this sea serpent? And the answer is not that they ever thought this was a thing that God did and that this was an animal, but that they mean something about it. And the context is the verse that starts it. God is my king from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. They mean God is reliable in uh, in fighting evil mm -hmm. and when things are going wrong, which I think is exactly what the Canaanites meant by it. Mm -hmm. So if the Canaanites have a myth that says our god Baal defeated a multi-headed sea dragon named Leviathan, same name, um, they also mean our god is reliable and yeah. you can trust him to overcome evil. 
I mean, they they also don't think this is about history or marine biology. <laughs> but the Israelites are sort of saying, you know, whatever you mean by that, on a sort of moral level, it's not true of your God. It's true of our God. Yeah, yeah. And and so it's it's a pushback. And they this is the main way they use this is it's a pushback. Now it, eventually they take a different strategy. And you do have a couple of passages, like in Psalm 104, where uh, God says, um, I created Leviathan to play with. Mm-hmm. So there, they're kind of saying, whatever you foreigners mean when you say your God defeated the dragon, the it wasn't even a fight for our God. In fact, he plays with it. He takes it around on a leash yeah. and... Um, and let's it's a, it's a guppy <laughs> yeah it's like a guppy yeah and so you see that strategy a couple of places it's also in job that way but most of the time it's this other method whatever you mean it's not your god it's our god but to know what you mean you really have to sort of see where this is coming from um now you don't necessarily need to see where it was coming from before Baal, but that's where this got interesting to me because I had seen people write, oh, this was already a myth that the Canaanites borrowed, but nobody had ever really delved into that in detail. And that's where uh, this just kept going further and further back in time. And by connecting it to to this myth in India um, and knowing how human migrations worked in the ancient world, where I was able to push this myth all the way back to like 8,000 BC. That's not as important for understanding the the biblical passage. I, I mean, it's interesting to me because it means that these metaphors that are very powerful, powerful enough that they use them in the New Testament as well, are, have been around for a very long time mm-hmm. and have meant something to people for you know, millennia. Um, and the meaning is almost always the same. So the meaning for the people of India is the same thing that this God is trustworthy and, uh, reliable in when things are going bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I liked that in, um, it's something I've heard, I've heard before too, you know, what you say of Baal is actually true of our God, you know, it's, um, like whatever Baal has done. And like, with the pagan uh, gods, um, the the mighty deeds they did, you know, or were said to have done, um, were difficult for them. Um, like they they almost they almost don't win against the dragon. Um, right. Whereas you know the God of Israel, uh, the the true the true God, you know, wins easily. <laughs> yeah. It's not even yeah, a challenge. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. Zeus in Typhon, Zeus ends up with his uh, with his. Uh, eyes, I think, temporarily taken away, mm. and you know Hermes has to come and rescue him. And I mean, uh, the the only other example where the where it's easy is the Babylonian example, and that's because uh, they associated their god Marduk with the the emperor, and oh, this see. was imperial propaganda as well. I mean, right. this is there's also a political element here. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Um, so I guess a, another general question, um, did these gods exist? Like, did, were they actual principalities? Because um, obviously you have in the Old Testament, you have uh, prophets fighting the, pro- you know, the, the prophets of Israel fighting the prophets of Baal. Um, 
And, you know, when they call, when the prophets of Baal call down, you know, for call up to Baal for help, Baal doesn't help. And, you know, um, so I know some, um, some people might not think that they existed, but would it be fair to say they existed, but they were demons? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the Old Testament authors don't go that route usually. Yeah. I mean, they're much more like in that story you're talking about. I mean, he, Elijah just mocks them for the fact that Baal can't do anything. Right. And there's certainly a lot of other places where they, you know, they say, um, you know, a guy cuts down a tree and half of it he warms himself and with the other half he bows down and prays to it. So, <laughs> but the but the interesting thing is they don't do that with the with the bad guys, with the dragon. Mm. So do they think the dragon is real? And and in a sense, I think they do. In And I think maybe at some point I say that if the Israelites were to personify is e- evil, they're not going to think of a, of a red guy with a pitchfork and cloven feet and horns. <laughs> I don't know where that image comes from. That's certainly not an image for evil that's anywhere in the, in the Old Testament. They're going to think of a dragon automatically. For them, if you said personify evil, what does evil look like? It's not going to be a giant spider. It's going to be a dragon because that's the thinking they've sort of been led to. So they don't ever – I mean they might say on occasion Leviathan is harmless and God considers it harmless, but they will never say it doesn't exist. Mm, yeah. They're, they'll say ba- Baal doesn't exist and Marduk doesn't exist and I mean those things they, they'll sort of say don't exist. But the, the, the fact that there is real evil, they have a fair clearly clear concept of. Uh, and, and I think actually this is what is behind the serpent in the Garden of Eden story. Yeah. Um, you know, we think of it as a snake, but it doesn't actually crawl on its belly until the end of the, <laughs> right. of the story. Why would it, why would uh, it do something? Why, why would the curse be something it's always done? You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so in a sense, although that's not usually considered to be part of the uses of this myth, I treat it because I think it is. And I yeah. think that's why, why it's a serpent um, and not something else. So why, why, um, why dragons then? Why the fit? Why identifying dragons with evil? I mean, cause that's a trope yeah. that is. Um, yeah. I mean, I, long, and long I, I found that there's this whole field of study called monsterology mm-hmm. where people have, have tried to unpack this and, um, you know, the, these monsters are, there are things you can imagine, but that you don't see. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a serpent, but it has legs or it's a lizard, but it breathes fire or it can fly. Uh, so you're mixing things that should not be mixed. And that kind of hybrid creature is the way most of the monsters of ancient mythology are. They're not depicted as, you know, you know, a, I don't know, a giant cube that walks. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> animals that have been combined in, in new and unusual ways. Um, why it's specifically a, a, a dragon, I'm not sure, but that clearly goes way back. Mm-hmm. But there's also this association of it being the sea, and that's there every time as well. 
whether it's India, whether it's the, the Canaanites, whether it's, uh, you know, this passage that I just read out of Psalm 72. Mm-hmm. And there, I think it's much easier to see. I mean, the, the sea, especially for the Israelites who are not a seafaring people, this is something terrifying. You don't know what's underneath it. Uh, it can quite suddenly turn uh, stormy and, and wreck you. Uh, and it's, you don't know where the other end of it is. And mm-hmm. it's just sort of, it's chaotic, right? Uh, the waves come and go in, in chaotic ways. And, and so the, the idea of making it the sea that symbolizes, uh, and for them, chaos and evil go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one makes a lot of sense to me. Right. Yeah. Cause God is, you know, order order is good usually you know (laughs) too much of it could be a problem you know um but order is generally good and chaos is bad like that makes that makes sense you can't have chaos uh and the sea being identified with chaos makes sense too as as you were saying um and people now i mean i mean i still if you go out on a lake and you can't see the bottom you get kind of nervous you know it's (laughs) Yeah. At least I at least I do. <laughs> yeah, and I mean and this allowed me too to say, okay, well what if we have all the mythemes except the dragon? Mm-hmm. But we've got the sea. And so then when I look at the New Testament, and I'm I'm not the first one to make this connection, I've got Revelation twelve where I have a dragon and it has seven heads. Great. But the passages of Jesus walking on the sea, which are connected to the passages where he stills the storm uh, on the sea. Um, there's a lot there that suggests this is actually a form of the same myth. Yeah. I mean, it says that he tramples on the sea. He rebukes the sea right. uh, the way he rebukes demons and in, in the, the chapters around that, there. That was interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a lake you can see from one side to the other. But I think that doesn't change the fact that it still has all these other elements of chaos and, um, you know, here's this sort of uh, sea trampling um, uh, figure that's identified again as the, the divine warrior. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that part struck me, um, especially when, uh, you know, I, I think it was, in your, yeah, I don't know if it was you or somebody you're citing, but uh, describing Christ like trampling the corpse of his, his slain foe, basically, um, where he, you know, he he descends a mountain, um, and then he walks on the water out to his disciples um, while they're fishing, and he's trampling the corpse of his of the dragon, you know, of the sea, and that that blew my mind because <laughs> I don't think yeah, I ever I never made that even, connection. I mean, before. if you combine it with the stilling of the sea, he tells the sea to be muzzled, yeah, which sort of implies that it was alive, like an animal, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you put a muzzle on a, on a rabid dog, you know, you know? right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's that's very very interesting. Um, yeah, when you were going through the New Testament, that was. Because I, I had known a lot about the dragon mythology in the Near Eastern um, religions. But yeah, when you connected it to the New Testament and you started you know, pointing out patterns in the New Testament that um, people don't normally think about as dragon slaying, um, especially the Christ walking in the water and rebuking, rebuking the sea, that was um, 
I think that's when I knew I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, and they're they're interesting twists. I mean, there's a place in Romans where Paul says, uh, "God will crush Satan under your feet," mm-hmm. and it almost is like like the his audience gets to become the dragon slayer. Uh, yeah. Because the, this this crushing under the foot is something that's been there since the the Old Testament texts. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's go back to Genesis. Um, when you, when you were talking about how, um, the dragon, you know, when you're identifying, um, the serpent, you're trying to, you know, go through what, what the serpent was and it's not a snake. Like it's not, and that's something that a lot of Christians, I think today, they, you know, they think snakes are somehow evil. Um, you know, they, or they don't like them because they're identified as a serpent in, in Genesis, but it, but you're, you are kind of connecting it to, no, it's a dragon. It's actually a dragon that's trying to um, almost even seduce Eve and um, you know, cause them to sin. And, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say to seduce Eve mm-hmm. and there's really two, I mean, there's clearly two things going on there and they want you to think of it both as um, they, they want you to, th- they don't want the reader to just take out the serpent and put in, you know, evil Satan, the devil, because there's a lot in the story that revolves around having just told the people to have dominion over the beasts of the field mm-hmm. and then introduce this. And, they, and it explicitly says the serpent, which is one of the beasts of the field. So the reader's supposed to know, oh, in other words, you can give it orders, not you can take orders from it. Mm. But at the same time, they could have they could have made it a spider. They could have made it an owl. And the reason they make it a, a dragon or a serpent with legs is because there is no other possible image for uh, personified opposition to God. Hmm. So it it's kind of both. And, yeah. and uh, it's both um, an animal, but it's a specific animal for a good reason. Hmm. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, your book is called um, the, dragon the mountain and the nations so we've kind of talked about the dragon what about the mountain so in all of these myths at the after the dragon is finally defeated there is a a feast uh where the the gods gather and and celebrate the enthronement of the victorious god on a mountain so that's in the uh, uh indian material it's in the Canaanite, the Babylonian, and so forth. Uh, And in the texts in the Psalms, the mountain becomes Zion. It becomes Mount Zion, where the the temple sits. In fact, there's one uh, passage where they even refer to Mount Zion by the name of the mountain out of the Canaanite myth, Hmm. Um, uh, Zaphon. Zaphon oh, right. is a is a mountain that sits up on the Syrian Turkish border, and, um, and it's Baal's mountain, right? Right. Yeah. It's the, it's the mountain that Baal gets at the end, right? Uh, and you get this, um, and although I'm drawing a blank as to which psalm it is, but you get this. Uh, well, it's in eighty nine, but it's also in. Um, it's in another one as well, where where it refers to the psalm. Or refers to Zion, Mount Zion, which is actually not really a very high mountain, as 
a Zaphon. Uh, it's, yeah, it's here in 48, uh, in Psalm 48. Um, uh, Mount Zion, the heights of Zaphon. I mean, this would be like saying the, you know, calling it an Olympus. Oh, yeah, um, right. Because their, their neighbors know it as, um, uh, you know, as the mountain home of the gods. Um, and so the mountain becomes then an important part as well. And in the New Testament, you get images, the mountain, and the mountain is tied closely to the nations because obviously in the Old Testament, you can't have all the gods get together and celebrate on the mountain. So instead, the mountain becomes a place where all the nations come together to worship God. Mm -hmm. If not now, then someday. Yeah. And so all of these Psalms that talk about Zion predict one day all the nations will come to this mountain of Zion. Uh, and that's picked up in the New Testament as well about all the nations coming together in, in, uh, in Christianity as opposed to coming to the, uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. But it's the same sort of mountain and nations imagery. The na there are no nations in the, in the foreign myths. Mm. Uh, the nations in the Israelite myth and in the New Testament take the place of the assembly of gods in all these other mm, myths. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. There in the pagan myths, you, you had said that they, they're, they can double as like imperial propaganda. So they're not going to be necessarily, well, I guess in the Romans, they, they would conquer people and they'd say, well, now you're part of our, you know, like, so there, there'd be this kind of false, uh, gathering of the nations and these other these other myths, but it's more like tied to conquering and um, like like almost like propaganda from these other pagan. Yeah, myths. and and there are places where it sort of seems like propaganda in the Israelite sense as well. In other words, there are places where God's representative on earth of dragon slaying is the king, the son of David yeah. who sits on the throne in Jerusalem. Um, but interestingly, the place you get the most of that, uh, the most um, of God saying David is the one who will um, uh, crush the serpent uh, is Psalm 89 in the first part where it talks about uh, God giving David this authority to, um, you know, even to set his hand over the sea, uh, which is definitely an allusion to the king suddenly being the divine victor, mm -hmm. except the second half of the psalm is, if all that was true, then how come the Babylonians destroyed our city and took the king's descendant off in chains and so forth? So you, you don't, really get much of the propaganda in the sense of it actually serving a sitting king. Instead, you get it as um, sort of thrown back at God as how did, how could you let this happen to the king <laughs> yeah, when he was yeah. supposed to have been this delegate on earth? Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, because you look at pagan myths and they're always winning. They're always conquering, right? Even though even in historically, we know that they would lose a battle, right? They would say, oh, yes, we're, you know victorious um whereas the ancient israelites were constantly losing because <laughs> they were usually right. they're disobedient to god um and so they would yeah and the, and but, the and more they powerful the 
the nation is that has the myth, the more uh, the more the easier it is for their god to actually be victorious. Right. So, which is why the Babylonian Empire has the the easiest dragon slaying. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I did not. Yeah, I didn't make that connection. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, so, let's see. We talked about. Yeah, so why why the Psalms specifically? Why is it so, why are the Psalms why is this imagery so prominent in the Psalms? Because you focus a lot of that, a lot on the Psalms in your book, uh, more more than the other parts of the Old Testament, yeah. although they're in there. But the Psalms have a lot of this dragon slaying imagery, and why is that? Yeah, I think it's because that this is poetry, and that you know poetry is where you're going to pull out metaphors, and um, and so it's it's. And where you don't have to be literal, um, you know, our God is a fortress. Well, not literally; he's not a, a actually, you know, a, a citadel of of bricks. But we know what it means, and so they are able to use metaphors here in a way that that it, you know, they do it in Genesis. But Genesis one and two and three are also what I would call myth. In other yeah. words, they're a narrative set in hoary, in a hoary antiquity that's been handed down and is really about philosophy. Uh, you're not going to see this in a history book like Chronicles or Kings or something like that. Um, you're not going to see it in... Um, well, I was actually surprised to see it come up in the gospels in the setting of Jesus on the water. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of symbolic acts that, that take place, you know, turning wa water to wine and, and things like this. So it kind of fits the, the symbolism there. But the reason you have m the most of it in the Psalms is precisely because this is poetry and this is where you need metaphor and they're, they're happy to use these metaphors. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, one of the things I, I, um, I have this appendix in the back where I talked about these images being reused by various other modern religions. And one of the one things I mentioned in there is Rastafarianism yeah, because yeah. Uh, reggae music uses the, the image of Zion, but in particular, um, you know, the Zion that is not like a physical location where a king happened to live, but the Zion as the place that all the nations will come and so forth. So it, it just lends itself to song like yeah. the Psalms. Yeah, that makes sense. The, so the dragon slaying, um, another, I think another difference and correct me if I'm wrong, another difference between the two, like the, the Israelite and Christian um, use of the myth and then the pagan use of the myth is that it for the Christians? It's at the beginning and the end of time, right? It's it's not just now, but it's or it's 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 at the end with Christians, where the the serpent comes into the garden, and then there's this right. promise, you know, that um, you know her her heel will crush the head of the serpent, um, but not yet, basically. And right, yeah, we want to speak to that a little bit. Well, I mean, I I sort of argued that that this is. Um, the initial defeat. Uh, you know, every other case I had uh, of this myth, I had the storm god initially defeated, and there's certainly no example of that. Any place in the Old Testament that it says God is 
you know, crushing the, the heads of the dragon. And sometimes it's past, like Psalm 72 that I just read. Sometimes it's, uh, it is already projected into the future, like in Isaiah, yeah. where it's, you know, on that last day, this will happen. Um, and so, but then I said, well, you know, the serpent kind of wins in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. And although it's not a confrontation actually at all with God, it's not, there's no conflict there. In a certain sense, uh, it, you could see this as a defeat. And then on the other hand, if I think about this in terms of Jesus being the one that walks on water, actually he does get killed. Uh, mm-hmm. So he doesn't stay that way. But there, you could again say, looks like an initial defeat to me. So I, I wanted to say, in a certain sense, um, the it's it's no contest for God the way it was for all so difficult for all these other gods. But in another sense, you still have casualties mm-hmm. on on the on the good side in the you, biblical tradition. You still have the whether you're talking about Genesis three or whether you're talking right. about the the crucifixion. Um, so that's still there, right? Yeah, that that's. Yeah, the initial defeat, it's that motif or that myth, the myth theme still kind of plays out in the gospel, even though, you know, it's still for God, it's nothing, you know, um, like he can, you know, with Leviathan is nothing still. It's, it's a really, yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting, I don't know if I'd say tension, but it's, there's something there that's kind of, it's a mystery. It's kind of a mystery, you know, <laughs> I think we're, um, yeah, I think that's something to kind of contemplate. Um, yeah, and I also want to add that, that the Israelites in sometimes envision this myth as sort of erupting into history as well. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they'll use this imagery to talk about the crossing of the Red Sea as well. And, um, uh, you know, in fact, there's one of the Psalms where, uh, you know, you're talking about God crushing the... Uh, the, the crushing the sea and um, uh, defeating the, the the serpent, and then suddenly it's it uses the images of the the Israelites passing through the sea on dry land uh, in the time of of Moses, and so it's almost like they see a way in which what's a a sort of cosmic thing, like it, it, it sometimes has a, a historical iteration as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's something at the end you, you point out, um, well, well, we can talk about this in, in a little bit, but, um, this, you know, what is, what are these things going to be next? What's the dragon going to be next, you know, in, in the, in scripture, um, and kind of, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to this, but well, you're kind of critiquing the salvation model, the salvation history model of, kind of catechesis. Yeah. Um, so, let's see. The, um, something I thought was really cool um, that um, when I, I shared this with my friends and stuff, and I thought it was just super cool. Um, the, when in St. Luke, when um, St. Luke references uh, the Virgin Mary, he says, blessed among women. And you had a note in here that says um, that phrase, blessed among women, actually refers to female assassins. 
Um, and then you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you you talk about that more? I I mean, I want more information on that. (laughs) The way I got into, um, so when the dragon appears in the new Testament, clearest is revelation 12. Mm -hmm. It's got seven heads and the author explicitly says, this is the same one as in Eden. So, it, you know, it makes the explicit connection. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot uh, that's drawn from the Typhon as, as well there. But the confrontation there is with this image of a woman that probably stands for uh, the, the church. Um, but at the same time, Christians from a very early period have seen uh, this woman, in a certain sense, is, is also Mary, because it says the woman is pregnant and about to give birth to uh, to the Messiah, messianic king, to the mm-hmm. Messiah. Now, obviously, this is not how it happens in Bethlehem, but this is kind of a, a mythic overview of it. And, uh, in fact, I even used in the book a, a, a photo that I took uh, in this. There's a massive uh, basilica next to where I teach, and it has an image of a seven-headed dragon confronting uh, the Virgin Mary. But um, I thought, you know, there's a, there are women in all these other myths as well. So in most of the dragon-slaying myths, the, the storm god requires assistance from a goddess. Baal needs assistance from uh, his sister, Anat. Uh, Indra in India needs assistance from a female goddess. Um, There are multiple other examples, Uh, not the Babylonian one, but all the rest of them. And um, there's a woman that's a female that's instrumental uh, in the uh, defeat. And we also had this mention at the that you already brought up at the end of Genesis three that says uh, from now on there's going to be this opposition between the woman and the serpent, um, and between this woman's offspring and and the serpent. And so, well, what's this role of the woman? And I thought maybe this is connected in a certain way. And so I did mention that there is this title, uh, "Blessed Among Women," women that is used. Uh, in Luke one forty two, and you get this phrase twice, once for Jael, uh, who in the book of Judges um, assassinates a Canaanite general by cutting his head off. Uh, <laughs> no, by, by pounding his head into the ground with a tent peg. Yeah, that's what it uh, is. Yep. And then the other one is in <laughs> Judith, which is a, a book that's uh, not in the Jewish canon, but it's in. Uh, it was a very early Jewish a uh, book that was very popular and, and gets into the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox canon. And there, uh, the blessed among women is this woman who assassinates a Babylonian general by cutting his head off. <laughs> so you have two female assassins, both of whom seduce their victim, which is what the female does in uh, in the Baal myth and in mm-hmm. the, um, the, the Indian myth and so forth. And uh, in both cases, they assassinate the head. Yeah, they strike uh, which the is head. Exactly what you had referenced in Genesis three. Yeah. So I just sort of threw this out here, um, and I say, dare we suggest 
that if Jael and Judith are for respect, retrospective readers, uh, so-called types of Mary, that Anat is as well. Uh, I don't think anybody else has ever said Anat. If you've studied Anat, it's like the last person you would want to associate with the Virgin Mary. Yeah. Because she's like really vicious, uh, bloodthirsty. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so is Jael and Judith. Yeah, it's... That was that quite provocative. <laughs> yeah. um, there's definitely something there. I don't know if she'd be a type, but maybe there's something that that kind of brings me to my kind of one of the biggest questions that I have is: Is there anything? So, what accounts for the similarity between these myth, these pagan myths, you know, and then we got the Old Testament and New Testament, all of these patterns, and there's a lot of similarities. Um, and there's there's borrowing that's going back and forth, but they're borrow they're you know. They came from somewhere, and in the book, in your book, you didn't, um, you didn't, you, you didn't set out to go and find the Ur myth, the original myth, right. right? But is this something that, I mean, as Christians, we in the Book of Revelation, it, it does kind of set up this cosmic pattern. Um, would these pagan, these pagans, are they kind of seeing that pattern, but it's distorted? You know, is that? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that they've got this idea um, that, you know, and late in the book I say that the, in, in a way this is a way of dealing with the philosophical question of evil. Yeah. You know, if, there, if, there's, a, if there's God that's powerful and good, why are there bad things that happen to good people? And you can either say, you know, somehow he wants this to happen and I don't know why, or um, you can say – well, we don't know exactly, but he's on your side. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that seems to be the answer everyone's coming up with. Um, because the, the Canaanites are still are asking that same question. The people in India are asking that same question. Why is there suffering in the world, even what, to people who don't you know, do things that are wicked? Yeah. Um, well, there is this sort of cosmic conflict. There are powers opposed to goodness and your god who whether it's baal or marduk or indra is is on your side fighting against them um you know israel's not saying you've got it all messed up they're saying you've got the name wrong mm -hmm. except for the few places where they sort of make it a, where they make the dragon a guppy then they're sort of saying that you know uh, God is much more powerful than even that, and, and it's much more mysterious than that. But that's not the main thrust. I mean, I have way more texts from the Old Testament where it's this this battle. Yeah. Um, and so they're really not critiquing the theology of their neighbors. They're critiquing which God is involved. Right, um, yeah. It's not what you say now, is true of Baal yeah, is actually true of right. the God of Israel. Yeah. Now, in the case of Baal, it's actually unusually difficult for Baal. So <laughs> while the Babylonian example is um, is unusually easy, the Canaanite example is unusually hard. And I don't even know why. And hmm. people suggested different readings. But, um, you know, part of the issue is that in many of these cases, they don't want it to end definitive because that would suggest that there's no more suffering now. And right. so even even in the, the Indian examples, there's sort of always this threat that the dragon may come back uh, yeah. and you're never sure if it's completely dead.
Well, you, so yeah, um, I think there's a different, there's a difference between the Christian version or the, you know, um, of, of this mythological pattern in like, because it's, it takes place at the beginning and the end with the eschaton too, with the, because I think with the pagan myths, it's always in the past, you know, that's what it seems like. I mean, you just mentioned that the dragon might come back, but it's always like, oh, this is something Marduk did, you know, and for Christians, this is something that ultimately has happened and will happen still. It's already, but not yet. And so the dragon slaying has yet to be finished, you know, and that happens at the end. And that's, I think that was another striking difference that I found between the two, you know, between the pagan mythology and the Christian mythology is that this, that kind of explains why there's still suffering and evil and stuff like that in the world now, because it's not done, you know, it's not the end. Yeah. Yeah, and it and this makes me think of another issue that I sort of con- I, when I presented something about this verbally really early in the process of writing it, and people, some people jumped on me and said that uh, you know this is the myth of redemptive violence that um, <laughs> you know we that, that is underwritten Western culture that we think that uh, that you have to defeat evil in order to have good, uh, but. One of the points that I make is that one of the myth themes that goes with all of these is that war is abolished when mm-hmm. the <clears throat> storm god is victorious. I mean, that's it's explicit already in um, in some of the psalms, and you know it, that's why the nations are able to sort of all come to Zion because right. they're not all dead. Uh, yeah, they're precisely alive, and but there's, there's now peace mm-hmm. with them. Uh, so I, I really didn't see this as part of redemptive violence, specifically once you've got this idea that, you know, it's, it's leads to, it's an overthrow that leads to peace. Yeah. Well, even, um, so going back to the new Testament as well, when you're talking about Christ, you know, uh, rebuking the waters and trampling, trampling the waters. Um, I think you said in the next, in the next chapter, the next passage, um, is that the miracle of the loaves and fishes? Is that when Christ feeds? I mean, he, then he feeds people, right? Yeah. That's, so that's another Yeah, and that pattern. was not my insight. I, I heard this at a conference, and I oh, don't okay. think this person ever wrote it out or published it. But uh, So there you've got the, the banquet yeah. uh, immediately upon the feeding uh, depicted, right. yeah. And so that's another part of the, the, you know, the mythos, too, is you know, that's why the storm God is also the fertility God, right? But they're the same thing because the storm brings the rain, which brings the food. And so, and interestingly, the dragon, um, I, I think it's in the Indian mythology, it, the dragon hoards water, right? So is it, was it the Indian mythology or is it? Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's in India. Yeah, yeah. the dragon like hoards water, uh, whereas in um, other like Norse mythology, the dragon hoards gold, right? It sits on mm-hmm. gold. Um, but water is you know, it's precious, um, for, uh, you know, growing crops. That's, and then when the dragon's defeated, then the flood, you know, the, the waters are free. Um, and then food is plentiful. Um, yeah, really fascinating stuff. Uh, um, so who is the dragon slayer in the Christian story? I mean, I think, Pretty well, obvious, I mean, <laughs> it, it certainly is identifying Jesus as the the dragon slayer, but then it sort of moves beyond that when you've got these passages like Romans, where he says uh, God will crush 
Satan under your feet. Yeah. Uh, where they're sort of extending, um, you know, and even in, you know, you have this passage in, in, um, uh, in Genesis three, where it talks about the, the enmity between the woman and the serpent and between her offspring and the serpent. So mm -hmm. it's sort of expansive. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a sense in the new Testament where they're in some ways they're making the, but the Christians as a whole, the nations, and in other sense, they're sort of making them the dragon slayer. Yeah. Yeah. It's really that I guess I didn't um, connect that when I read it the first time, but yeah, especially when you said that um, we're all called to slay the dragon. Um, I mean, that's, that's participating in, in Christ's nature, you know, when we um, become saints and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it makes, it makes sense when you make that connection um, that we're supposed, we're, we're called to crush the head of the dragon with Christ, you know? Um, and yeah. And I don't, I don't think I cited it in here, but I have, I found uh, like early um, baptism formulas that include uh, in all this, these images where the water of baptism is, is the water of, of the, the, the dragon. And, wow. uh, and, and the, the person is, is coming out of the water victorious over the water. Wow. Uh, and I didn't cite them in here, but, but I, I did find some of these really early on, uh, from the first couple of centuries of the, of Christianity. Wow. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's a little, that's a little different than what we do. I mean, it's, it's the same, we still use water, right. But we don't think about it in, in that way. Um, yeah, yeah, really. That's, oh man, that's really interesting. And, um, so you have the redemptive violence, um, the criticism of it. I, I don't know, cause you, you talked about metaphor and you, you, you talk about how, yeah, the, the, the violence language is metaphorical, but it's still like Christ's, you know, has a sword coming out of his mouth, right? You, you still have yeah. scripture as the sword. So you even, you can't get around like the, the violent metaphorical imagery. You can't just downplay that. It's part of it. Um, and people want to, I don't know. I don't know why, what the, what the drive is to kind of reduce that lang that, that violence sort of language, but you, it's, it's there. Um, so you said that um, the, the sword, the Christ with a, has a sword mouth, you know, a sword coming out of his mouth and uh, scripture as a sword invites the reader to think of Christ's words in terms of a conquering warrior and to reason in these terms. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm quoting somebody else there about <laughs> who doesn't like it still. Um, oh, well, it's still, yeah. Your, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, it's, it's how we're supposed to be thinking about, being a Christian, at least that's what I think. Um, and not in like a, yeah, and, a weird right. or awkward way either. Not like, I mean, there are people out there who kind of go overboard with it, but it's, it's still, the language is still there. You know, it's still, you know, crushing the head of the serpent is still part of, <laughs> still part of uh, the story and you can't really get around that. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, in part, I, I, I understand where they're coming from that, that if it's, you could see this as, justification for human violence but it it you know even in the the only place where the humans are involved is like in that passage in romans mm -hmm. where uh 
But even there, it doesn't say you will crush Satan under your feet. It says God will crush Satan under your feet. And it explicitly says yeah. the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I, I said in one of the things, you can't enlist in God's army. That's <laughs> So uh, the, the battle is not the you know you there is imagery of, of of the christian fighting a battle but it's not this dragon slaying the dragon slaying is is happening on your behalf yeah right and the you know we're we're contending against powers and principalities and not flesh and blood that's right also from saint paul so it's yeah it's good to keep those things in mind because yeah you i mean misreading scripture is a it's always been a problem <laughs> <laughs> um, and using it to justify all sorts of horrible things. Um, but yeah, so, um, going through, so any, any, any like thing you want to say before we, about your book, um, before we talk about the theological implications of, yeah, I mean, I think we can go to that because that okay. was actually originally in the book Okay, and the editors of this series made me take it out and they, they said, we hope very much that Dr. Miller will publish this, but not here. Uh, because, I mean, and I, there's a lot of theology in this book, but they that was, they thought, a little too theological. Mm. Uh, and so I took it out, and then I published it as a separate essay. But that was originally... You know, somewhere before the conclusion, right? Like right in the in the last uh, section of chapter sixteen. Um, so there, there's a definite link there, and, yeah. it, and it is a sequel to the book in a in a sense. Um, it it does it isn't introduced that way. So it I started in that article by sort of critiquing other ways that. Um, people try to unpack theology from the Bible mm-hmm. that I'm worried about. And the drag, the, uh, the article is called "Emphasis on History." Right. Um, the drag, the article is called "Dragon Myths and Biblical Theology," and it's published in Theological Studies. I just want to say, yeah, that. yeah. Go, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and and so I started the article by noting um, uh, the, the, this idea of salvation history, which was really a major trend in Protestant theology in the 1960s and 70s and kind of died out and now uh, it's become a major trend in Catholic theology in the, like the last 10 years mm-hmm. and uh, and I'd said it, it worried me for two reasons the, the minor reason is what do you do when uh, archaeologists tell you these events didn't happen but I thought the much more bigger reason is that there's all sorts of parts of the Bible that you can't fit into history. Yeah. I mean, there's really, if you're, if, if, uh, if your theology is unpacking the, the mighty acts of God throughout history, then that leaves the, the Psalms completely out. Uh, and, and, and I realized that it's part of this sort of larger Western way of thinking where we, uh, we value history and science as that's the the highest form of of speaking that's the highest form of discourse mm-hmm. and poetry that's for pop songs and valentine's cards <laughs> and um you know uh, it, it, people who write poetry you know what do we think of people who write poetry i mean it's 
it, we don't think in those terms. Uh, although, um, you know, we love uh, the Marvel Universe and we love the, the Lord of the Rings and we, we love uh, mythology and mythic imagery, but it's entertainment. Uh, and to me, that seemed like you're going to miss an awful lot that way. Yeah. And I wanted to sort of recapture the ways in which myth, uh, and I had written about this before. I wrote an article called Myth as Revelation that I published a few years even earlier, uh, back in 2014. But I didn't give any examples. And so I wanted to say, okay, here's an example. We're going to take something that no one is going to deny this is a myth. So, you know, if I start working with Genesis 3, I'm going to have some people say, that's not a myth. And other people say, that is a myth. If I say, oh, God, you crushed the heads of Leviathan, nobody's going to question whether that's a myth. Right. And can I unpack theology from it? And so I tried there to build on this idea of the theology of the question of evil and how does it address that and, in fact, address it better than just speaking in in sort of prose mm -hmm. that poetry and imagery actually helps you uh, deal with these issues on a much deeper level yeah um that yeah when i read that paper uh, i'd never really because for me you know the salvation model of history uh or the salvation history model you know it's been around since I came back. I came back to the church five or six years ago. So that's this, and it, it's a little bit older than that. It's, you know, 10 or maybe a little bit older than that in the Catholic world. Um, and so for me, it was like, this is how you're supposed to view history, right? Or mm -hmm. this is how you're supposed to view scripture um, through this historical lens. But, you know, if you start looking at, you know, archaeologists who are trying or like, look, they're looking at, okay, did these events like actually happen? You know, um, you said in your article that you're not denying necessarily that they're that they're historical, um, but that's the wrong approach because it's it can be at least in the short term like debunked. I guess you know that's the biggest weakness with that approach is that okay, well, I just you know there's no historical evidence for the existence of right. King David or something, so I'm not going to listen to you anymore. You know, um, like that's just silly to believe it. But then we we learned you know we learned about a hundred years ago or so that. Everybody thought the Trojan War was a myth, and then you know now, now people are all in agreement usually that the Trojan War happened, and something like that happened. So it's, you know, even if things get kind of quote unquote disproven now, you know, might get more evidence in the future. But it was an interesting critique because this kind of just avoids that whole debate, and you you start looking at the mythic patterns in Scripture and not necessarily okay, did this literally happen you know um and in in some cases yes like you know the the jews were enslaved by egypt and all, you know right. but yeah that that was interesting um yeah and 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 the idea and i've seen a lot of these like curriculums and things with the big timelines and so forth and then it's like well where's psalms well <laughs> you know david writes them and they're here but no, where's the content of psalms it's nowhere because you can't fit it into that model yeah i mean nothing happens uh, and um, and so I thought we're in trouble here. We need we need more. And I'm not saying we don't need history. In fact, I say that that yeah. the you know the Nicene Creed is a historical narrative. Right. This happened. That happened. This happened. 
but um, it doesn't. It, it would be giving you just sort of a real small slice yeah. of what's in the biblical text. It's an incomplete uh, with picture. no room for the Song of Songs, with no room right. for the Psalms, with no room for Proverbs, with no room for uh, you know anything that doesn't have a storyline to it. Right. Yeah. Um, I just keep thinking about like Jeff Cavins, you know, and <laughs> and he's, yeah. he's one of the biggest, you know, and like he does good, really good work and you know, it's, it's fantastic. But yeah, it's when, when you pointed that out, I'm like, yeah, that's totally true. Like these, these poetic books of the Bible, like they don't really have a place in this model and they're some of the most profound passages of, of scripture. <laughs> you know, you gotta, yeah. you have to have a way to fit that in. Um, and it's just it makes me think that, yeah, I think what you were saying, this almost, I don't want to say materialistic, but this almost materialistic approach to catechesis and to our own faith that has kind of crept in without us really realizing it, where we're saying, okay, yes, history is good, but it's not, you know, there's more, there's more than just the historical record, right? That's like, right. that's not and like view science as the highest form of knowledge and it's not you know um yeah that was made me the article made me think a lot about um kind of how we teach how we teach people about the faith and and catechesis because at the end i think you talked about how you know we should be asking when we're reading scripture what's the dragon going to be now you know what's what how are these patterns going to play out in this story you know um in this book of the bible um, so really, really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say they don't, they don't ask what happens next because they already know the dragon's defeated, but the, the right. matter, the question is what's the next dragon? Right. Um, yeah. You end, I think you end it with, um, this quote from Andy Angle, Angel, um, Andy Angel, yeah. Angel. No two dragons are the same. Some are dead. Some are subdued and others are very much alive and kicking. We are invited not only to sketch, but also to color in our own dragons so that they reflect our own sufferings and challenges. The myth can be molded to fit our realities, and yet the expectation that the story will finally break the mold when suffering is past. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you, you had a quote in here. Um, Christian truth is always embodied in poetry and myth. Um, so... That's... Yeah, I mean, it's always... I mean, that's why we always have these symbols. Mm-hmm. Um you know the the why why baptism in water um you know what, what, what the there's always something that stands for something else right and you know as soon as you say well in baptism we we die with christ i mean that that is that's myth in a sense yeah that's not literally happening um you know so what is literally happening is is stands for something else. And this goes back to my short definition of the myth to say in the terms of the world, what's beyond the world. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Not when you said that, I didn't quite understand water. it, but now, yeah, now I, I have a better idea, especially in yeah. terms of baptism. Cause you're literally just dumping, you're just pouring water on it. On usually a baby, right. you know, that's what you're literally doing, but it's doing something, you know, in terms of the world, but beyond the world, you know, it's putting that indelible mark on, on the soul. And it's, it's, <laughs> you're emerging from the defeat of the dragon, <laughs> which is a very cool way to think about baptism. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else? I mean, this is, this is a fascinating book and everybody should go buy it. Um, 
I mean, yeah. it takes you all over the place. Yeah. And I have, you know, I saw that, you know, you have to be prepared. You're going to be in Japan. You're going to be. Well, and a lot uh, of the... I, it took, it took me all over the place. I mean, yeah. literally I, in the research for this took years. Uh, and I, I went to India for some of this and, oh, wow. um, uh, so it, it, I had no idea when I started this, where this was all going to lead. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, very good read. I, the last few chapters, I couldn't put it down. I was just, you know, burning through it. Especially, you know, when you get to the New Testament and you're just like dropping all of these, like, you know, <laughs> oh yeah, the when Christ is walking on the water, he's trampling the corpse of his enemy. <laughs> like, yeah, wow, <laughs> really cool. Um, well, and the nice thing there is the person who wrote the most about that is one of my colleagues here, uh, Jack Heil. Okay, uh, who's now retired, but. Um, he he was the one who had had uh, first sort of argued that was behind those uh, uh, the symbolism there. Yeah. Um, what else? There. So I know you talked about the Aztecs, their story not really fitting, um, but it is interesting you, you, when you have like Our Lady of Guadalupe. You know that um, apparition was yeah. down in down in Mexico. She appears on a hill on Tepeyac Hill where they would perform. You know that was the, the the ancient Aztec site. I think of the their goddess, um, who I think was depicted as a dragon. I think, um, and then are you familiar with with that at all? Or? I, well, I know that it's you know it's clearly building on the biblical imagery, yeah, and then it's also drawing in the Aztec imagery. I mean, that yeah. to me is interesting. So there's no, I don't think there's a connection ahead of time. Yeah, but. You know, once you are, once you're talking imagery, it becomes much easier to bring in other images. Uh, and so, you know, the the fact that she's the moon that she's standing on, and I've I've seen this image unpacked before. Yeah. Uh, that that it it uses symbols that are being drawn from the Aztecs and melds them with the symbols that have been sort of already there. Right. Uh, and well, she's down. standing in front of the. She's blocking the sun, which is yeah. you know their god. Um, you know, they're the highest god. I think for the Aztecs is the sun god. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce any of the names. But <laughs> and she's standing on the moon, which is another deity. So she's like she's more powerful than you know those two. And then all of the constellations on her um, on her robe, like they all map out to you know you know she has like Leo over her womb, you know, or something like that. I don't quite remember, but the same sort of imagery, even though it's not related mythologically necessarily historically, um, because there was no contact between the, you know, the ancient Israelites and the Aztecs, um, as far as we know, but it's, it's just interesting, the similarities like with Our Lady of Guadalupe. So I, I was just wondering if you ever thought about that. Um, cause I, yeah, I, I that was a connection I made like last before, but I think weeks the, ago. The idea is that if you're, if you're, if your theology can be expressed in imagery and myth, then just as, you know, you can sort of explain things to a new culture, it actually is easier yeah. because now you can say, okay, here's how it relates to your religion using your imagery. Right. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, that's, that's what I have. I don't, do you have anything else? Want to conclude with anything? 
No, I, this was great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, this was really fun. Um, and what what's in the future for you? Any any interesting research you have um, you're working on now? Uh, I had a uh, I've actually had a couple of books that have come out since this. Okay. Um, and I'm sort of between projects right now. I see. Uh, 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 it, when I'm no longer uh, uh, in administration, I'll have more time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, this one t- literally. This was I was working on this for eight years. Wow. So this uh, this was not a short term project. Yeah, that's and it shows. I, mean, I, I see. I went into it not knowing um, anything about comparative linguistics or anything like that. So that those sections were were difficult for me personally, just because I did I'm not familiar at all with it. But um, uh, and how you kind of compare linguistics to, you know, how you use those, metho- the methodology of comparative, comparative linguistics to, um, and utilizing that for comparative mythology, which is pretty, uh, interesting. But again, I didn't know anything about linguistics when I went into it, so I just knew some of the pagan stories. And um, and again, a, a friend of mine recommended recommended that, your book, um, so I read it, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this podcast, and this isn't really about fiction, but it's about stories, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and it's I mean, about. I think Tolkien comes up a few times, and Charles Williams. Yeah, comes you up a you few you times. dropped name dropped Charles Williams in the in your uh, article. Yeah, that's yeah. And I reached out yeah. to him like, Have you ever read Gene Wolfe or Tim Powers? <laughs> yeah, actually, Tolkien is not in the book, but Williams. I'm looking in the in the index. Williams is there five times in the book, plus in the article. <laughs> Oh, that's that's great. Um, great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, that's all I have. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Might Believe in Fairies. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter at Aaron Erber and like me on Facebook. If you're excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada. And podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon.